Welcome to Beyond My Comic Shop. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Beyond My Comic Shop is a subseries of My Comic Shop History, featuring stories in and around the comic book world. This subseries was previously known as Flat Squirrel Tales, but following a crisis on infinite podcasts, all of my shows now live under the My Comic Shop History podcast feed. This installment originally aired as an episode of Flat Squirrel Tales last season. It features a man who has worn many hats in the comics industry, retailer, editor, and creator. Once upon a time, Brandon Montclair was my boss at Alternate Realities. Today, he is the writer and co-creator of Rocket Girl and the writer of Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Our conversation begins with a discussion of the recent Rocket Girl coloring book Kickstarter campaign and takes off from there. My Comic Shop History, Beyond My Comic Shop, and My Comic Shop Book Club will all return with new episodes later in 2018. For now, enjoy this presentation of Creator Chat with Brandon Montclair. You and Amy recently uh, successfully funded a Rocket Girl coloring book on Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, that was fun, and uh, it's coming together and it'll be going out soon. But, um, yeah, it was like a little thing, kind of an anniversary. Uh, uh, We started Rocket Girl on Kickstarter, and... Kickstarter's a lot of work, so we said, let's do something simple, and we just did a, a one-week campaign for for a coloring book, which I, you know, I keep goofing, saying, you know, it's a it's a very last year type of idea, but yeah, we certainly got funded, digging it, uh, it's come together beautifully. People are going to be really happy when it when it arrives in the mail, and it was just fun. It was, and 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 one of the reasons we like Kickstarter is talking to fans and, and interacting with them and getting people excited. So. Uh, with the return of the regular issues in the store, it was it was something we wanted to do. So, so um, and yeah, you you guys exceeded your funding goal very quickly too. Yeah, it was it, it was a pretty uh, modest goal, um, but enough to get it done. And uh, again, hopefully, uh, people are excited about it. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to jinx anybody's Kickstarter who might be sitting across the table from me. But <laughs> uh, one one of the great things about Kickstarter that people um, don't appreciate about it. And for obvious reasons is if you don't make your funding, right? It just means that there wasn't support there. There wasn't interest. So, you know, we picked a reward that if there's enough people who want a coloring book, we'll make the reward and then we'll make the coloring book. So for you guys now, you've done, again, this is your, this was the third one that yeah, you did, correct. right? Because you did third. Halloween Eve. Yep. You did Rocket Girl mm-hmm. and now the coloring book. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you have a sense at this point of, of how many people you can mobilize and mm-hmm. what you, what you can kind of raise. Is there ever any, do you ever have to like restrain yourselves and like if there, is there something where like yeah we could kickstart this but maybe let's let's ease off and not not go to that well too many times yes and i think you know the, we've done three but it's been i don't know four years or something like that so so we we certainly don't keep going back to it maybe not though now that we did this now that we did this it was kind of like i said quick and it's easy it's like oh you know if we want to raise four or five thousand bucks which will pay for the stuff, make it worth our while to put a little bit in, in our pocket, but only a very little bit because most of that, uh, I don't even know what we raised, 4500 something like that, is going to go to the kick, is going to go to the printing the coloring books and mailing them out to people. But, yeah, it seems like, and it's different, and I think we were um, at one point a little nervous. Not that we'd be taking a step back, but if we, you know, we launched Halloween Eve, and that was nice, and then we launched Rocket Girl, was a bigger type of book, and then that was even a bigger response. So, there's something of a of a of a uh, you know somewhat compelled, at least a part of me, to say okay now I have to do a bigger book and a bigger Kickstarter and keep raising the bar, but I was able to step back and do it really simple and with a low goal and and like I said like I said really modest. That uh, maybe maybe that opens the floodgates too where it's like oh yeah well you know I don't think we're going to do coloring books two through ten but you know 
Yeah, maybe. maybe. And I like doing it. You know, I like uh, interacting with fans. I like. I always have fond memories of packing all the envelopes and working with people and sending it out and that type of stuff. Probably in the middle of doing it, you get frustrated, but. You know, just like I said, it fits. So, yeah, I, I think I will do a couple more Kickstarters now. So, I'm, if anything, I'm not going to pull back. I might do some more, but, yeah, they'll be the small ones. And there's nothing there's nothing on the immediate horizon, so. Cool. And speaking of Rocket Girl, so it was on hiatus for, for a while, right? Mm-hmm. How long was it, was it off? You know, it, it's, it was unbelievable. It's like I don't even want to confirm how long it's been because <laughs> it was so much, but a year, more than a year. Okay. But uh, before we resolicited um, eight Eight, nine, and ten were all done, all colored, one hundred percent ready to go. So, and I saw one of the interviews that you gave. I think it was at the Five Points Festival okay. recently, where uh, so the ten issues, like that, was intended to be the maybe the conclusion of the first major storyline. Is that yeah, the idea? exactly? Um, you know, when we when we first uh, did it, we figured it. You know, Halloween Eve was a one shot. Uh, Rocket Girl, we do five issues. It was really too tight a story for five issues. We would have made it work. But it was um, successful enough that we said, hey, we can make this kind of first arc 10. And if those 10 first came out um, quicker, you know, we, plans for 11, plans for going beyond that. But, um, you know, it would be a very different direction. 1 through 10 is kind of kind of the story that we always kind of had in our head. At one point that we tried to fit into five issues, but very quickly, um, you know, probably in between the first and second issue, we said, no, we should really let this breathe. So... And if you don't mind me asking, the reason for the hiatus was it just just getting it done? Yeah, yeah. you know, there's a uh, you know a lot uh, a lot of uh, drawing, a lot of coloring, a lot of uh, stuff uh, to get going, um, and you know, curveballs get thrown your way. We did uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which was you know I don't want to speak for Amy, so I don't know how big a distraction it w- was for her, but I'm guessing it was something of a distraction uh, because she 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 came, she took herself off of it to kind of finish up Rocket Girl, and um, I don't think it was hours of the day we said well you know co-write it to a to a cover uh that's what amy's responsibilities were on, on moon girl and devil dinosaur because it takes so long to do an issue of rocket girl and to color it and to design it and to do, letter it she does everything um and put so much effort into it moon girl would be kind of a way that she could be present on the shelves every month and it was great and i think we're both very proud of it again i, I don't like talking for her but, um, yeah, it just, I think it was kind of like a, a distraction type of thing. It wasn't even so much that she spent all day writing a script or all day working on a cover. That takes plenty of time. But it was also just not being able to kind of sit and focus on stuff. And, uh, yeah, no, and, you know, my contributions, too, I, it's kind of like if you give me, if I have seven days to do something that takes one day, I'll take eight days to do it. You know what I mean? And uh, instead of getting it done that first day. So it was just, just slow. Same reason all books are late. <laughs> when you have a hiatus like that, mm-hmm. I mean, is there a fear that people yeah, lose hiatus interest? is like a nice word that we even just use. It was just like you know, it's just a delay. <laughs> well, that makes oh, it sound the book's like... on hiatus. It makes it sound like you, you somehow it was accounted for. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll still say hiatus, so I'm not trying to call bullshit on myself. But I'll go I, with that. Too. I could, yeah. Uh, but so yeah, is there that fear that people lose interest? Like, how do you keep? How do you yeah, keep the audience and, and, and they and they and they have. You know, it's uh, it's it's weird because you know the one Rocket Girl always performed a little bit differently than the typical book. And there are a lot of books nowadays that perform a little bit differently. And the market's changed a lot in the last, um, even in the last five years that Rocket Girl's been out, or four years that it's been out. And certainly the, the year that, plus that since the last issue came out, or I should say the last issue of the, of the original run. But those were very late also, you know, uh, especially six and seven. But uh, yeah, you know, there, there really was, uh, there was a hope because the trade paperback has always sold and still sells and has legs 
Sold a lot of the first trade, still sell it. Had to reprint it in the middle of that year-long hiatus. When it came back, the the, the single-issue sales uh, from the stores were, were really, um, you know, I, I, disappointing because you thought they'd be higher, but expected to where they are. So the trade coming out in December, we're really kind of hoping, um, you know, is, is where we take a bite because uh, already 8 and 9 are out and uh, 10 is out in a couple of weeks and the sales have not really been there, so... Mm. Was there anything that you did during the hiatus or after those initial orders came in to mm. try to get people into it again? Yeah, especially the retailer, because uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I, you, the retailer is your customer, you know. Um, but um, so we, we did some direct outreach. Uh, we worked with a guy named Matt Klein, who uh, works at uh, Forbidden Planet, but he also does kind of uh, direct sales for Valiant, and he does direct sales on a freelance basis. Yeah, you put me in yeah. touch with him. Yeah, I think that was just to kind of, yeah, because he's also at uh, Forbidden Planet, but he's literally a guy for Valiant who calls up uh, the, the store owners of the world saying, hey, how are you doing? How are sales? And, uh, you know, so we had him do the outreach for us, um, one, for time, but two, because he could, you know, we knew that there'd be retailers who were not so happy with the, the delays on the book. And, uh, you know, we, and in addition to that, you try to get your fans into it to talk about it and ask their retailers. And, you know, nobody's sitting on, oh, my God, I have a ton of copies of my eight and nine. I mean, I, I think if, you know, it sold in more, those copies would have moved. Nobody, I don't think, is sitting on tons of copies of sixes and sevens and one, two, three, fours and fives. But, you know, there's only so much shelf space. There's only so much attention. Uh, super proud of the books. I know, I really do, a, I know they're going to find the readers anyway. So it just would be nice to, um, you know, have made a bigger splash, uh, you know, as it would be nice to make a bigger splash than we made the first time. It would be nice to equal splash that you took a step back. It's, it's what happens. It's what happens when you take a year off, you know, it's not, not anyone's fault, but our own. So was there any specific feedback that you heard from the retailers through Matt? Yeah. That, you know, yeah, yeah. It's late. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't blame them. I, you know, I, I feel sometimes I can, spar with people because I was a retailer for a long time, but not when I'm sitting on a book that's that late. So, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, the quality's there. It's a great book. It's going to be collected well. I think one day, a hundred years from now, when people are reading Rocket Girl, one through 10 will probably be like a single edition, uh, single trade paperback. We have the second volume to kind of finish it off. And, um, like I said, it's a good story. Uh, it, it hasn't diminished any kind of interest in Hollywood or in the places that want to kind of develop it. Now that it's back, We've been a little bit more attentive to it. It's been getting some, uh, the press that it gets kind of always spurs that type of thing. So on, on that end, it's fine. Uh, you know, reprint is, like I said, the trade payback is doing well. Foreign reprints, there's still the interest that there's always been. So it's not like it, uh, it, it killed the book because, and this is, you know, what you've been talking about your entire podcast, or at least why I listen to it, the main podcast is that the the business is changing and uh, you know I don't I'm not trying to say that the thumb my nose at uh uh the retailers who ordered a couple thousand less copies of Rocket Girl number 9 you know but it really is it's it's there's other ways that the book makes money and those channels are still pretty strong and I wish it was strong in the direct market I love nobody loves comic shops more than me yeah, of course. You were one of the owners of Alternate Realities, mm -hmm. and I had you on my comic shop history in season one, and we talked about your, your tenure as owner of AR. Right. But yeah, on that note of your experience as a retailer, uh, and since you, I know you said that you've, you've listened to some of the My Comic Shop History episodes, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, is there anything that you want to share based on what you've been hearing from other retailers? Any 
any takeaways or anything that it's kind of spurred in your own head <laughs> about <laughs> yeah. about the industry where it is where it's yeah, going? Yeah, you know, and, and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm anticipating what we're going to talk about today. And I know, like I said, I'm, this is more of the the personalities behind the the business uh, episode of the, uh, the version of what Anthony does. So it's not like oh, let's like start talking about the future of retail. And I and I but I hesitate not because I have negative thoughts. I don't really have negative thoughts. I think there are challenges, and I really always believe that any challenge that kind of comes your way is really an opportunity for people because it's something's going to change and you can catch the wave in the right direction. But I think there's a ton of challenges for uh, retail shops. And um, something I've noticed in the podcast is, and it's, it's, it, and it's not just in your podcast, it's in Twitter, people talking about it, it's on Facebook, it's on the Comics Beat. Uh, you know, yeah, retailers are, are, are getting a little bit uh, tribal. The controversy now that's coming out with Marvel lenticular covers and not carrying it or carrying it. It's like I, I, I don't think uh, retailers as a whole being pugnacious with Marvel and DC. And they always like blame Marvel, but Marvel and DC are like a monolith in, in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, they're totally, every single title is different. But um, yeah, to, 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 to say, hey, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. It seems to be that those are kind of medium and smaller size stores. And the bigger stores are kind of trying to, to get with the program and say, oh, I better sell more T-shirts and Funko Pops and trade paperbacks my business is moving to. And uh, what, what is the future of the monthly single issue? Uh, it, but that the monthly single issue, as much as it's what most stores are dependent on, it's how they're made. I mean, DC Comics has 300 people, most of whose job it is is to put out monthly single issues of comics, regardless of where the money's being made. I get that with Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and Marvel. I, I produce that book the same exact way as Spider-Man and X-Men when it doesn't sell that way. So, I, I like I said, I think there's challenges. I think... It's, um, people should, I think people have lost focus. I think people are kind of angry and looking to fight about things when they really should be looking about what the future opportunities are. Yeah, well said. But that's going to get me in trouble, so, but I don't care. <laughs> they, didn't I, or, they didn't order enough copies of Rocket Girl 9 anyway. <laughs> and uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur ain't selling tons in the single issue. No, but I mean, there's, there's stores that have been super supportive too. So, and, and you, I, I honestly worry about that bias. It's like, oh, I say the big stores because they order Rocket Girl in good quantities or they order... Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur trades in good quantity. And, um, I, yeah, I, I, and working on books that aren't Spider-Man and X-Men and Batman, books that I grew up reading, and even selling it, uh, you know, alternate realities is pretty much a mainstream store. I worry, am I biased because my opportunities are now outside of the kind of monthly superhero market? Am I overplaying that? Maybe I am. You know, sticking on, on the retail side here, you know, one of my takeaways from the Midtown Comics episode mm -hmm. was just how much they can do for independent comics Absolutely. and independent creators. One of the things that came up in the conversation was that, you know, ind indie creators can go to Midtown and say, like, well, you know, how is the book selling? What, you know, what sort of feedback are you getting? And, you know, they're able to order in quantities that maybe would make a difference Absolutely. for someone Absolutely. like you. Absolutely. Uh, Midtown is, is so important to um, creator-owned books. Uh, Gall, who does all the ordering for them, is so important, the uh, most important guy in comics for a lot of uh, books that come out. Uh, they, they, they do real uh, real percentages that you see at the end of the day are just going to Midtown Comics. And I think it's disproportionate to um, smaller books. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's always kind of been the way that, um, you know, bigger stores sell not just more copies of everything, but higher proportion of, of the more second and third tier titles. 
And Midtown's a huge part of that. And, and, and they know it. And Gaul knows it. Gaul, you know, I've, he said it. I've overheard him where he says, oh, yeah, we ordered a lot of number one. Don't worry, I won't drop number two too much because he knows how dependent uh, the market is on it. And hopefully he's rewarded of having those books in stock and not sitting around and, and moving. So Interesting. And what is the relationship like with, with someone like him? And like, how do you foster that and, and get the book on the shelves in the first place? <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm trying to remember how I was first introduced to Gaul, uh, who works in the warehouse, you know, um, but does all the ordering. And I don't know. I don't remember. It was probably because we had Rocket Girl coming out or, you know, we we're both in the city, so we'll ask to do signings and whatnot. So maybe it was, hey, we're stocking this, we're stocking that. And I know at one point, it was probably the first time I met him, was we just went to the warehouse to sign a bunch of copies for their stock. So they'll do an in-store signing, but they'll also do stock signing. It could have been that Amy was doing a variant cover for them. Might, that might have been first. I'm trying to remember what which, what was first. But yeah, I mean, like I said, it was, it was basically just the just just simple networking. You know, as important as he is, he's not a rock star. I don't think people stop call uh, at the in line at the supermarket and say, "Hey, you're the guy who orders comic books from Midtown." You know what I mean? So. You know, I, I'm sure he, I hope he likes that he's being appreciated. It is He's very important to the business. Well, I don't know if you're an indie comic creator trying to break in. Maybe you have done your research and you know who he is. Maybe you are tracking him down. Yeah, maybe. Right? And like I said, and like I said and I'm not saying, oh, you're blowing smoke. No, I mean, Gaul's important. He cares. And, and, and he's a huge part of Midtown success in general, too. I mean, he, he's a rock star in that world, or should be. It's just not a world full of, full of rock stars. I met uh, Garth Ennis once on the corner of a Union Square Park. And I said, hey, you're Garth Ennis. And he, he was like a little bit weirded out. For, I said, are you Garth Ennis or something like that? And, and he was a little bit, uh, this is like seven or eight years ago. He was a little bit weirded out, I think. But then I said, no, no, it's like I'm just a fan. And he was happy and said, oh, like, I've never had a fan stop me on the street before. But I said, oh, I work, I work for uh, Bob Shrek. I work at DC Comics. And then he was like a little less impressed because it wasn't like really just like a random person on the street. So then he went about his way. He had like a big Hawaiian shirt with like samurai design on it was very very bizarre have you ever been on the receiving end of that where someone is has recognized you out in the wild no no not out in the wild you were on humans of new york though i was on humans of new york yeah i didn't know who the guy was at the time so he said oh i'm and his name is brandon also he goes oh i'm brandon whatever his last name is and i'm famous basically he said oh yeah he said, this is good you like it so yeah that got a lot of people on it and um i have met people who said they've read my books before i guess but not not like like I said, not on the street. No, I've never seen somebody reading Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur on the subway or something. That that would be cool. Yeah, you know what's so fun? This is gonna sound so vain. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been doing the podcast for a little while now. Right. It's about comic books. You know, the sure. first season very specifically was about one comic book store, and then the mm-hmm. second season was about collecting. But you would think like stores and the people who go there, you know, that's re- really the target audience. Yeah. But for all of these other stores I go to, I feel like like one time someone might be like, oh, like yeah. wrecking, or your voice, like, hey, listen sure. to the show. Never happens. That's no. okay. Well, it happens to be like shops and, and, <laughs> and, and conventions, but no, not in a while. But you'll get there. That's okay. I'm not, you know, it's not a big yeah. deal. It's just uh, part of it's a, a little bit of an ego thing, but more so yeah. it's just like, how do I get these people listening to the show? Because yeah. these are the people I want. <laughs> oh, I want everybody, just to be clear. But, you know, that audience in particular. But anyway. So you also mentioned with Rocket Curl other channels where the book does well. Are we talking mm-hmm. like Amazon trade sales? Yeah, I mean, trade I mean, you know, you can you can break it down in a million different ways. But um, what what people don't, you know, there's a lot of uh, misperceptions out there from kind of the, the weekend warriors who look at sales and whatnot. They look at the diamond charts over single issues and think that's 
all that there is and it certainly isn't and it hasn't been for a long time and it used to be that you can maybe extrapolate a little better than you can now if something's at the top of the monthly list it'll probably be at the top of the trade paperback list and so on and so forth but you have single issue sales uh and along with kind of single issue sales i would throw in digital sales because they usually sell current you know new issued new, right. new digital they buy it yeah, the collected edition that sells uh, in comic stores too. I mean, I think I talked to a lot of big stores. A lot of the stores in New York are by default big stores, and they are selling more of the trade paperback as well. Then you know the single issues are going down, trade paperbacks are going up, and luckily the stores I've been talking to, the trade paperbacks are going up a little faster than the single issues are going down. Um, I don't know that that's true in the smaller stores. Um, I don't know that they kind of shelve it, the, shelve it the same way, or they kind of have. That in and out type of uh, customer, but yeah, and then there's also the mass market trade paperback sales, which would be Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everything else. And then for print, you also have foreign reprints. And for Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, you have Scholastic, which is its own printing. It's a little undersized. They change the price. They change the paper quality, and that's just distributed in school book fairs. You know, so there's a lot of different places where even just print is, is starting to make money. And then, like I said, you have Someone wants to make a TV show out of it. Someone wants to make a movie out of it. Somebody wants to make a lunchbox out of it. Um, there's all of that stuff. And it's real. I mean, there's two ways you can kind of play that. Um, for Rocket Girl, we've always held out. People say, oh, I want to kind of do a 20-minute uh, short film and try to get funding and this and the other thing, which is cool and interesting. But we're more impressed by the people who say, oh, you know, this should be the next Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, and I'm going to try to get, you know, a hundred million dollars to start developing it. And, you know, it's to me, if it's a million to one or 10,000 to one, what's the difference? So, you know, the <laughs> yeah, difference, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, so we've always gone kind of with the bigger ideas and then say, Hey, you only have a, a very short window. They want an option uh, where no one else can kind of mess with it. And you get, a, you know, get a little bit of money. That'd be great. But you can really sell an option where someone like takes a, a traditional Hollywood option on something. And they might give you 3000 bucks. They might give you 5,000 bucks. You might get lucky and get 10,000 bucks. But then they sit on it for five years and nobody ever does anything with it. So we've been kind of like, hey, you know, see if you can make something happen and get a little bit of traction and then it goes away and then you give it to somebody else. And, you know, they used to get like a bad name, like, oh, you're just writing a movie pitch. And, you know, I've never done that. The books are always what's important. And a lot of people, I talk to major producers who are, who've, who've done tentpole movies about Rocket Girl. They probably talk to 50 other people about 50 other projects. So I'm not trying to say anything. But it always comes up like, oh, we'll try to make this, 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 uh, this. And, and to me, working in comics is great because the stuff gets made. You know, if I work on a comic now, you're breaking into the business and stuff. But if I work on a comic now, it's going to get printed. It's going to get published. It's going to be a book that I can sell. So if you work in movies, who the hell knows what's going to happen, you know. so yeah, Very fickle business. More. Yeah, and I, and, and, I, and, I, and I do not say what does television need 18 months from now and let me do a book like that. I do the books I want to do and, you know. There's always going to be some interest in outside media now because they just need content. So, well, it sounds like you have a good attitude and outlook towards this. Yeah, it's been all right. One other, just one last thing on the on the retail side of it because sure. I, this I just would, one. I can talk about retail, <laughs> yeah. or maybe more. But you know, since I have you here, I think it would be interesting to get your take. One of the stores I visited, uh, the episode has not been released yet, but it's uh, Escape Pod Comics uh, out on yeah, Long Island. Menachem store. Yes. Yeah. Oh, have you? Do you, yeah. Do you yeah, know Menachem? Yeah. Okay. Well, you're probably familiar then with his philosophy. I mean, he really pushes independent books. And mm -hmm. one thing that he does at his store and that he advocates that other stores do is devote more 
shelf space and display space to mm-hmm. independent books. His argument is that, you know, you go into a lot of these stores and you see a huge display for, you know, the traditional superhero books, but they don't need that. That mm-hmm. people are going to seek out those books no matter what. But if you use that shelf space to showcase something else, like these independent creator-owned books, again, you can turn people on to them. You can get, you know, more and different people into comics and into those titles. How do, I mean, how do you feel about something as someone who you know who writes both for Marvel and for uh, sure. you know your creator uh, yeah, on books? Yeah, and and Escape Pod does far more indie. Like I don't even know if I would my stuff would be considered <laughs> indie for Escape Pod. I mean, he does. It's really, fun, you know you say that, yeah, but exactly. I, that's, yeah. I know I yeah. agree. I mean, he does. I mean, he does some stuff that's really out there. Um, every store kind of has to find its own way. I mean, alternate realities was a hundred years ago. Um, we tried to kind of sell more of that stuff and never never moved. Uh, but you can't even compare because it was so long ago. Um, this is a question that will take, you know, 15 podcasts to answer though, because I really think, um, a lot of things, I think, first of all, you got to kind of do what you're, what's good for your store and, and what works mm-hmm. for your store. And, and, and I also think you got to work, work for you. If you hate independent books, you're not going to sit there and make, you know, you, you put the on display, who cares if you don't care what you're selling, it's not going to move either. Um, and if you love it, it is much harder to sell a, a, an oddball copy of something than it is to sell Superman. But um, I really think that um, what Escape on and Menachem do great, and even some big stores do great, is is, um, is kind of that focus on what they can't get other places. And, the, and, and it's also just the experience of walking into that store and seeing all of this stuff, uh, you know, shelved and what he recommends and what he showcases within the store itself. It's not just like going to Amazon knowing what you need and buying it, which you can totally do with the new... Scott Snyder, Batman, you know what I mean? Or, or any other thing like that. And get it at 30% off and, and not have to worry about it. Um, I think a lot of retailers are going to be challenged uh, over the next few years. And is that a way to kind of survive that you're, that, 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 hey, I do independent books, but maybe also they can be involved with the creators, they can be involved with the publishers, they can be really stuff that it's, it's not easy or consistent to even know about, let alone find on Amazon. I think that's a, a good way to do it. Now, can you have that kind of business model? And he's closed on Saturdays, right? And, uh, you know. For the Sabbath. Yeah, exactly, for the Sabbath. Can you can you have that kind of business model and be closed on Saturdays and do it on Broadway and 12th Street? I don't think so, you know. But if you're if you can work it in Huntington and if you can do it in the middle of Iowa, yeah, I mean, there's going to be different kinds of stores that work. But that just makes every store more and more different, which is going to also make it harder to do single issues. And the, and the people that it's harder for are the big guys. Marvel and DC, as much as they have um, the economies of scale in their favor, it's less and less efficient, I guess, for them to put out monthly books. I don't think monthly books are going, any, going away anytime soon. And like I said, they totally dominate the creative aspect, and that's going to be hard to shake. But yeah, if stores are worried about, um, you know, Am I going to get enough foot traffic? Am I going to gross enough business? A place like Escape Pod at least has, I think, has a better chance because it's going to provide something that you can't get from Amazon, basically. Amazon's the biggest threat to comic shops, if you ask me, but you know, who the hell isn't Amazon the biggest threat to? You know, you know what I mean? That's nothing new. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you don't see toy stores anymore. You don't see music stores and movie stores anymore. They just don't exist. You know. So is that what you, you see as the biggest challenge to stores, is that people are buying trades more than single issues, and they're getting them elsewhere for less? Yeah, I think trades is, is, is certainly an inconvenient format. It doesn't, and, and people are, and, and as you have an older audience, and people complain about three ninety nine for a price, it's like, 
Well, if you, if you multiply that by whatever and it gets into trade, it's usually a little bit less, but even if it's the same, trade's going to go on your shelf and it's going to sit there. Put it in a box, you know, unless you're kind of a collector, it's really, it's a hobby market. And uh, I don't know that a hobby market is going to serve, what hobby market is, is selling as, as storefront retail. And you can say, well, people buy LPs and people buy all kinds of oddball things. And maybe you could say, oh, you know, there's a lot of record stores kind of still in Manhattan. You know what I mean? But the means of production, you know, Taylor Swift isn't making content designed around vinyl. You know what I mean? Vinyl is, like I said, it's, it might be, might be the premium, might be what people, the, the true aficionado likes the most. But, it's, you know, her entire business model is built around downloading MP3s probably, you know? So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, it's, comics is in a funny spot where how can it continue creatively, production-wise, to create this content for a monthly book for stores that are, even the, even the stores themselves are selling more and more trade paperbacks. So, I, I, I you know, except it, that doesn't mean it's the death of comics, but, you know, it's a, it's a big change, and it's a big change that, Marvel and DC will weather, will all the stores, I don't know, not all of them. That's what I think. I hope not, you know. No, it's always interesting to get your take on this, especially yeah. given your experience as a retailer. Sure. Um, kind of on that note, but uh, more of the uh, the personal side, when I recorded with you the first time, it was okay. during the, the closing days of alternate realities, and yeah. we talked about whether or not you might make an appearance. Yeah, I never did. I and said I was didn't. going to, and I didn't. No, I don't have a car. I can't get up there. You were. You got to White Plains for the Undiscovered Comic Con. That's true. That's true. They, they paid me. They, pay, they paid me a per diem, though, in my travel expenses. That's what the alternate realities had to do. They had to pay me to come. No, I, I went to um, Undiscovered Con because I worked at Alternate Realities for a hundred years, uh, and not that I, I mean I did see some people that I knew from the store, and a couple people that knew me from the store. You know what I mean? Oh, you worked, you know. But uh, no, I mean I just um, no. I mean there's there, I, there's no there's no interesting story behind why I didn't go. I, I intended to go and then. Got busy. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what? Honestly, yeah. I... No, uh, I mean, I don't feel guilty about it or anything like that. But, no, nor, nor, nor should you. Yeah. But going to Undiscovered Con really was not... I like Westchester. I like the Westchester scene. Uh, you talk about retail. There there was a million stores when I was a kid. There's not a million stores anymore. I don't... There's... Alternate Realities was uh, not the biggest store when it opened and when I was involved with it. And it came, became the biggest store, both by growth and other things falling off. And it became... The only store for a while is, you know, all due respect to the other ones that are around. And now there's a few small, you know, small town shops, basically. Um, no central place for comics in Westchester, and that's a huge market. A huge market because you used to have 30 stores, you know, 30 stores 20 years ago. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I never made it up. Sorry. No, that's quite, you know, the sense I've always gotten from you from when I interviewed you for the documentary and then the podcast and anytime yeah. I've spoken with you is that you've really, you know, made your, your peace with that time and that that's the past. I mean, I, yeah. that's sort of always the sense I've gotten. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, I can't, I can't say it better than that. Um, no, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 I loved it. I loved working at the store. I'm proud of the store. I'm proud of its success. When it was still going strong, I'd always tell people it's still going strong. I think, you know, uh, Steve wasn't forced out. It's not like he, you know, went bankrupt, but, uh, you know, he knew when the time to hang it up. And, yeah, no, you know, it's, it's probably best that you or Bill Mayo or somebody else didn't uh, take it over. Maybe it is. Someone told me that um, the whole 
the shopping center now is 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 being renovated or not? Is that uh, is that true or not? See, look, I, I you don't, even, you don't even drive by. I, no, I no, I do. Okay. So AR the, that space is still vacant. Right. The Mexican restaurant closed, and now it's a, a different one. Okay. The Chinese restaurant closed, and now it's a Vietnamese restaurant. Okay. So no, it's still. So someone said that no, the whole strip mall was being. Not as far as I know. No. I mean, maybe they heard something yeah. I, I didn't. No, they were probably just looking at the wrong street. The AMP, that's, that closed, obviously. Oh, no. they, they all went out of know. business, but oh, they're that. turning that into a gym. Okay. So, yeah, that whole the whole area there is... <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not even... Central Avenue isn't even the hub anymore, isn't it? People seem to go to downtown White Plains or something like that, or I don't know. Yeah, I think that's yeah. probably fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's changed. I, I'm I'm really not in Westchester that often. I did take a train to uh, Undiscovered. Country. Yeah, what was your take on the that convention experience? Uh, I had fun and I did well and I was surprised at how well I did. I was sitting next to Matthew Rosenberg, who's uh, writing for Marvel now, a bunch of stuff. And um, I did better than, than he did for sure. <laughs> but uh, the guests were like me and Matthew Rosenberg and, uh, you know, the Blue Power Ranger and the 1966 Batmobile, I think, were the, the yeah. top. So, no, it's, it was a small... And Barb from Stranger uh, yeah, Things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was... A, so it was a small show for guests. And, you know, you could think, oh, well, that's going to... means I'm going to do well because there's not going to be enough... There's not going to be competition. But the, the fear would be like, oh, there's not going to get a lot of people looking for that type of stuff. And what do I have? I have, you know, three or four different products that I can actually sell to people. But I did really well, and I was really happy to do it, and people were, were enthusiastic. So I, so I liked that show... Um, I got to look around also, uh, and I still buy some comics and buy some odds and ends. Uh, so no, that was, uh, that was cool. I've been to a lot of shows at the, uh, County Center. Oh, you know, a lot of shows over even more years. So it's not like it's a regular occurrence, but that was their second show or. Yeah, second. Okay. So yeah, if there's a third, I hope they. There will be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope I get invited back. I'm sure you will be. Yeah. No, it was a lot of fun. And I was, uh, I did, I did, I did well. And, um, it was cool and people were excited to buy stuff it's funny because now that i do moon girl and devil dinosaur and it makes sense i sell a lot of rocket girl because people people have the moon girl and they come and say oh what's this rocket girl and and they pick that up so yeah that was actually so i'm going to shift now and get into the moon girl and devil dinosaur side of this uh, and that was actually one of the things that I wanted to ask if, mm-hmm. uh, since you, you and Amy, so you and Amy co-wrote the first uh, 18 issues. Correct. Right. And then you took over solo. Correct. Uh, so in the time that you guys were writing it and now that you've been writing it on your own, yeah, I was going to ask to what extent you've seen that kind of spur the Rocket Girl sales. Um, you know, a, a lot anecdotally, like you're talking about at the shows, a lot of people come up and like if, there's, if they meet me, they say, oh, well, I'm going to pick up Rocket Girl also. But not, not a, you know, not a, not a ton. Rocket Girl, like I said, has always kind of had a, a consistent uh, sale. It's, it's, it's also, people used to like mistake Rocket Girl for being all ages. And it's not like terrible, but it's not, it's not an all ages book. Um, I, you know, it would be nice if I could say to Scholastic, hey, you know, you guys distribute Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. You should see this book and put it in the school book fairs. But it, it's, it's a little too adult. Even though it's PG thirteen, you know it's not like I said nothing brutal or anything. So I can't really cash in on big opportunities for um, for the Rocket Girl stuff, and it's really yeah. So so a little bit, not a ton. Um, uh, Rocket, you know, and I'm sure in the direct market, um, Amy's uh, reputation and, and mine to some extent helped get a little bit of interest on on the new series. But Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, it's kind of its own thing, which is which is perfectly fine. It creates a lot of opportunities. Um, for for writing gigs, people uh, come up to me because one, it's uh, all ages, which um, is in my mind a kind of. I don't know any all ages cre- creators, uh, certainly not outside of comics, 
but I have a, an eight year old daughter. She just turned eight and I read a lot of the stuff she reads and it's terrible. And it's like, <laughs> it's like so it's like, and, and I think, and I read a lot of comics that are designed for that audience and, and they're not made by Marvel or DC. Right. And they sell hundreds of thousands of copies and they're terrible. Uh, so, so, and again, I, I, I say, well, if a kid likes them, they're fine. I, I'm not trying to say I, I can do what they do. And I've had interest from publishers saying, Hey, can you do what you do at Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur for us? So oh, cool! it's opened a lot of doors and I should have a lot of that stuff coming out in 2018. It's 2017, right? So 2018, uh, I should have a lot more, uh, kind of all ages mass market stuff coming out, which was totally a hundred percent. The door was opened by, uh, by Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which they like because it's different. It's quality. I mean, I've been making comics, you know, my whole life with the best people who make comics in the world, not just as a writer, but when I was an editor working with top talent. So I can kind of put a book together really well and kind of every book I've ever worked on, I'm, I've worked with great editors too, but I've always had a hand in kind of managing the book as well. Uh, let's kind of do this way. So I've been able to, you know, for the most part, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, I've been able to do that where I, let's work with this artist. Let's do this kind of story. Let's kind of try to do it this way. And so that skill also translates into interest of people who want comics. Because as much as you can say comics is struggling in stores uh, or here and there and every place else, the content is still in so much demand. And not just in the new Spider-Man movie and Walking Dead TV show and everything else. It's It really is uh, the the skill level of professional comics creators is so high compared to television writers I and mean, movie writers and 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 forget about publishing you know what i mean that's yeah no you know i wish i was jk rowling was that her even name i don't even know i don't read the harry potter stuff i wish i wrote hunger games it's not like it's there's you know it's all dog material but there's a lot they need a lot of content and comics people i think kind of in their nature are really super equipped to do that type of stuff and then they really like that it's an all-ages book that exists in the Marvel Universe. That's kind of a weird, weird, nuanced approach. But it is that the Moon Girl takes place right next to the Hulk and the Avengers and everything else. That matters to them that it kind of fits into that. And a lot of people also, um, a couple of things I've been approached to work on are kind of like adult, not adult like meaning, not porno, you know what I mean? But like adult meaning, um, you know, uh, uh action violent properties that they want to kind of de-age they they all they i've gotten interest to do that stuff and i don't i don't i i did a little bit of that work for like hey we want to make a character bible like a video game company wants to make a a, a pitch bible for tv but they have to de-age it so they say oh you did all this can you do that and i was kind of interested in that for a while but then it never gets made and it's not my character stuff and they pay you well but i don't need the paycheck so i'm doing less of that now but a lot of those opportunities this is a very long answer for uh, an oddball question. No, that's quite, yeah. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. Now, you know, one of the reasons I always like to talk to you is that you have worn all of these different hats within the industry. You've been mm -hmm. a retailer, you've been an editor, now you're a creator. Yeah. And I would imagine that all of that makes you, you know, much more well-rounded. And I think you, you could probably see the bigger picture in a way that maybe other people might not be able to do in the same way if they've only had one specific experience yeah, in the industry. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I think it's, a, it's something that's always benefited me. Um, it's not even that I have... The experience is, it's kind of a, maybe it's chicken and the egg, because a lot of the reason I kind of have these things in my toolbox is because I'm interested in it. I've always been interested in all these aspects. So it's not like, oh, I fall into all these oddball things. It's like, no, I, I really pursue them and like doing it. I've worked with Amy Reader a lot. Um, as far as, hey, where's this book going to do? What's the publishing end of it? 
when you work for Image and do a creator on book, you have to be really involved in that. And she's just as smart and could do all that stuff, but she has no interest in it. I have an interest, and that kind of creates the more diverse opportunities and, and the things that I've done. So uh, the interest feeds the experience, experience feeds the interest. And, yeah, you have to worry about being a jack-of-all-trades and a, and a master of none sometimes, but I try to use it to my advantage that, that I know all different kinds of odds and ends in the business when a lot of people don't, you know, so. When you say, like, taking more of an active role with the image book, it, like marketing? Yeah, absolutely. Marketing and design and getting people excited and fan outreach and everything else. Marvel and DC have now adopted it. That's pretty new, but, you know, Twitter wasn't around seven years ago when I was still at, uh, when I was still at uh, DC, and Facebook was probably new. And as much as you had any kind of social media as an editor, you were not allowed to do it. You're like, no, that's you don't do that. And creators were even, if a creator asked, can I do an interview? We'll talk to, and they still want you to talk to publicity first and everything else. Like, no, let them set it up, let them vet it, let them do all that type of stuff. Um, that's changing. But when I was still at DC, that's the way it was. It's like, don't go out there and make it for yourself. But now it's not that, it's not that the publicity department doesn't know what they're doing, but that's just, you know, what, what's, what's the publicity department going to do? Tell you what to tweet? They don't do that. And they know that there's so many people following, so many fans following on that platform that not only are you allowed to do it, you're kind of expected to do it. And all that just gets uh, amplified when you're working for Image. And Image is the best deal for creators in the business by far. So I'm not trying to say that, oh, you have to do it yourself, but you do have to do a lot of things yourself. That's that's one of the it's one of the advantages of working for Image because you can do it your way. Right. You know, with the social media presence, I wonder to what extent that plays a role in giving certain gigs to certain writers or artists, like knowing what kind of platform they have to help boost it. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. Um, I don't know if it's, I think it's been a couple of years that they see when it, it doesn't always translate, you know what I mean? That, oh, I have a lot of followers, but they don't sell a lot of books. And that person maybe doesn't have a ton of followers or isn't very active, but still sells a lot of books. But uh, it goes into the calculus. I, I think I think a couple of years ago, it would be how many Twitter followers do they have, give him the book. And now it's like, oh, he does that, but you know, do they respond to, you know, I, I think it's a bit of, I think it's a bit of both now. Right. But it's important. And again, certainly seven years ago, eight years ago, you weren't even, you weren't even allowed to talk. You know, if, they, if they could shut everybody up, they would. You know, Maybe they still would. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe it depends on, yeah. on the creator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But with Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, so like I said, I read the first volume last night. Cool. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I was going to read it no matter what because I you know, want to keep up with what you're doing. And I knew we were going to be talking about it today. Sure. But, I mean, candidly, I was like, well, okay, it's this, you know, preteen female protagonist. It's an mm -hmm. all-ages book. I was like, right. it'll probably be cute and fun, but I don't know that I'm necessarily the target audience for mm -hmm. it. And I loved it. Yeah, I you. was really engaged by it, like way it. more than I was expecting to. Not that I had yeah. low expectations, but mm -hmm. I just figured that it wasn't quite for me, mm -hmm. and I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's funny because uh, I'll take out your word, and you're not just being nice to me no. because you're interviewing me. <laughs> But there are people who like it. I like it. You know, so I was gonna, no, it really is. Uh, we take we take all ages to mean all ages, and it's funny because it, you, you, Marvel marketing won't even ever call it an all ages book because they'll say that'll kill the <laughs> they'll kill the sales. I think it's still rated teen you know, some, or some ridiculous thing. Um, it's it's but all ages is not children literature. It's something that everybody should be able to to watch. I don't think we're as acerbic as like The Simpsons, but. No, there's, there, there should be things that only the adults get when reading it, and not just jokes, but you know, some of the some of the situations. It's a, it's about growing up, but it's about remembering growing up too in a lot of the situations. And it's also about 
a girl and a dinosaur. I mean, I think 80% of it's about a girl, and, a smart girl and a dinosaur. So, uh, you know, it's, it's well done comics. I've, I've learned working in comics that all kinds of genres, all kinds of stuff. It's, it, it's well done is what makes it a good experience. I think people have that kind of, you know, it's, it's always hard to sell that. You know, I, I, I'm going back to the alter realities days now. It's like, well, if you like, you know, Oh, I don't read manga. It's like, well, how can you not read now? Like, how can you not read Akira? How can you not read some of these stuff that, certainly transcends um and there's a lot of goofy manga that like you would never think you'd read the uh, marmalade boy or something that's really well done you say it's so well done i'm gonna read it but yeah there's there's always that challenge working on uh, moon girl and devil dinosaur they're not gonna buy it or try it just like it was daredevil but you know that's the book we're, we're working on and, and and i'm proud i'm proud that we created a new character that people care about that showed up in three video games that's now on issue i'm working on I don't know, issue 30 or something insane like that. So I think 20, yeah, you're, 22 you're really or 23 ahead. is just out on the story. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and there's conspiracy theories about, uh, oh, they're only keeping Moon Girl and Devil, Devil Dinosaur around because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's political. And this, I said, no, it's, it's, it's actually supporting itself through different channels. Uh, Squirrel Girl is a huge success for Marvel. Uh, Ms. Marvel was a, is a great character on so many different platforms for Marvel. Uh, you want, you want to learn about this business, it could all be encapsulated by Deadpool, believe it or not. Deadpool sells a solid amount in comic shops, but why do they do 50 titles? Not because it sells 40,000, although that helps to do 50 books selling 40,000. It's not quite that much, but it'll always consistently sell as a monthly issue. It'll do well as a trade paperback in kind of its first iteration. And if you look at the book scan numbers, which kind of track Amazon and Barnes & Noble and many of the major books sellers, but not all of them, you see a lot of Deadpool trades that are five or six years old still popping up in the top hundred, you know? It's just one of those things that makes money in every different direction for Marvel. And then they did a movie, which was a surprise success. And even though Marvel didn't uh, produce it, it was just a property that seems to work. And I, I don't read Deadpool. Uh, I haven't read a Deadpool comic, I don't think, ever. You know, <laughs> you know. I, and maybe when it was Agent X uh, ten you know, years ago, I think when it was I read like, it too. That's <laughs> there it. You go. There you go. I do like Gwenpool. That's a good book. Uh, if you want a recommendation, but um, no, and it's it, and that's it's the furthest it's the furthest thing from from Moon Girl is probably Deadpool. It's just like I said, it's, it's it works kind of in every channel solidly. Creators, editors, and retailers and comic shops are really what's responsible for the content. Still, hugely. No, there are people who they, there are some initiatives to make content for in different ways or for different channels, but almost all of the creative energy goes into making these monthly books. But the monthly books is 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 a fraction of a of a business that's in the business of creating IP anyway, not making money on publishing. So as much as it, it's and it's and it's not even the majority of print anymore. The monthly comics it hasn't been for a couple of years now that trade paperbacks have have surpassed print. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the rise of trades yeah. is nothing new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, it was coming, and it's now it's past the tipping point, and it continues to grow while while single issues continue to shrink proportionately. You know, even if uh, if if single issues have an up month or an up year, trades have a bigger one. You know, uh, by and large. Um, but yeah, there's certainly a, there's certainly a, um, an ownership that I think retailers and creators and editorial take of the success. So. Oh, I work on the number one book, and I, you know, it's 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 really myopic, though. Well, we've you know we veered back into, into the retail yeah. side, and I guess you know we, yeah. again we've been talking about the challenges. I mean, what 
I mean, if there's anything that you would recommend, like what are some potential solutions? Maybe solution is too strong a word, but things, initiatives that retailers can or should undertake to sort of help them in these changing times. It's tough. It's tough. I'll tell a a side anecdote about inkers. Um, I don't think a lot of people um, who want to get into the business Everyone, you know, of, of the entire pool of people who want to get into the business, you know, you have people who want to write, you have people who want to, you even have people who want to edit, you have people who want to draw, certainly. You have people who, uh, the, the small people who say, oh, I want to ink, I want to do more inking, I, I'd be a great inker. Um, when I was doing portfolio reviews at DC five or six years ago, whenever it was that I stopped, uh, it was true, it's even more true now. You want to be an inker, be a colorist, because a lot of people are just shooting from pencils, they're inking their own stuff, it's a lot easier. It's just not the type of gig that you're going to get. And inkers that are really good and really experienced and have long-lasting relationships with pencilers, they're going to keep all that, those jobs. And they're not going to create new jobs for new inkers. So it's, it's something that's not the strong place to be anymore. And I don't want to be that harsh to retailers, but I don't know if retail is the place to be, um, and, you know, uh, selling monthly comics and you know it, even if you're in a place where you can afford the rent and you have a nice community store they're going to be around and you, 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 you got nothing to worry about five years from now maybe not ten but it's it's diminishing it's diminishing in its importance to um, and at some point Marvel and DC and Marvel and DC are going to be the first to do it I mean uh, but at some point Marvel and DC are going to realize that hey we put a lot of energy into these monthly books and it's just not it's just it's great it's a tradition, but it doesn't match the return on the market. So slowly but surely, I think, the way that you're making them is going to change. And then once that changes, the attention is going to change. And they're going to be focused on original graphic novels. They're going to be focused on just the character content. Maybe that'll be digital. Digital still hasn't even taken off, and it still can. You know what I mean? Digital is still such a small part of the business. That could blow up at any time. But the trade paperbacks are doing well. So, so you know... Is the answer of making a retail store that sells trade paperbacks? Probably not, because how are you going to compete with Amazon? So retail stores you know, went through a lot of different phases. I think I said this on the last podcast. I say it a lot. Where you started off with, um, you know, you could get books on the newsstand. So stores became the collector's hub. You know, I need back issues. I want a Spider-Man number one. That's why I go to stores, for back issues. Uh, when I was working in alternate realities, it transitioned to... Like entertainment, it was at that time you could still go to a blockbuster too. You know, I want these stories. I got to get them at the comic store because they have everything, and they'll get what I want. And it was for readers, and it was about the content and the stories. Now you have Amazon, and you have digital. You can download whatever you want, and maybe it doesn't take up any space. So the stores had to become destinations. You know, but I don't know that any destination business is really doing so well anymore. Certainly not selling three ninety nine magazines. You know, so what's the fourth? What's the fourth? You know, phase. You know, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like I said, appearances, still making the destination. Kind of like I said, I, I, I think comics retail the future is T-shirts and Funko Pop. And I think it's, you know, we, we talked about uh, Escape Pod comics. I think it's smaller publishers. I think it's, it doesn't have to be indies that you never heard of. But I think relationships with Image, relationships with a, with an aggressive store like Valiant that wants to grow in the, in the hobby market, um, IDW, Dark Horse, all those things, that might be you know, a place to focus. And that's what I would be doing if I was a retailer. But you also have to kind of, the store you're in, you're, where, where are you putting me? But if I can, <clears throat> excuse me, create that, I would try to say, hey, it's, it's smaller publishers, more interaction with the creators who are willing and, and, and excited to 
to do that type of stuff, more merchandising, you know, things like that. But I don't know, you know, uh, conventions are growing. So what, what makes conventions work? Is it meeting the creators? Is it buying stuff you can't get? Maybe is, is it the community? Maybe it's all a little bit of that stuff, you know, but I don't know that conventions are certainly getting more and more attendance. I don't know if vendors at conventions are making any more money than they ever have. It's a challenge. I don't know. I, I mean, except, and that sounds like a negative it, to me. Like I said, um, maybe that's not why I'm not in retail anymore. I don't, I don't see the future in a way that would be exciting for me to participate in. And that was true 10 years ago, where it was the only way alternate realities could get bigger is if we opened another store or something like that. And we're doing it. We kind of hit the hit our head on the ceiling uh, as far as the way we were doing business. And I couldn't think of or wasn't interested enough in thinking of new ways to do it. So. Like I said, now, now asking that same question with publishing, what's the future of comics? I can, I can go, I can give you 10 different ideas and easily. And that, is that because it's a better field? I don't know. It might be, but that's where my head is. So, you know, I don't know. Some genius retailer out there is going to figure it out. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, uh, the comic shop as an institution is something that, you know, we have deep ties to. And I, you know, certainly I, I wouldn't have spent as much time, chronicling no. them uh you know otherwise like I said, so I you're, the, you're, you're the uh, you're the you're the uh, silver surfer galactus is right over your shoulder you go to <laughs> you go to comic shops and they they close i prefer not to think of it that <laughs> no, way okay although alternate realities and jay's comics that's both, what i'm saying yeah, i know yeah, exactly. i don't have a great track record i'm yeah. sorry to all the stores i've been to <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean in, in you know not that you want to make excuses uh, but it, it, i don't you could ask me what is the future of books you know, I don't know that it's any different, but I really think the challenge is going to come. I think I can't imagine why retailers are going to be blindsided, but they don't seem to see it. Is that Marvel and DC are going to pivot at some point, and they're and they and and they're going to pivot really slow. Uh, and I think the pivot's already started. I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. It's really slow. It's going to take a really long time. But I think that the future of comics is pivoting, uh, and and I don't think the retailers see it, and I think they. Th- think that they can resist and Marvel's going to change and DC's going to change because they resisted. And it's just, I, I, I mean, I don't see it. I don't, you know, why is that going to happen? Why? I mean, there's less and less stores. There's some stores that open, but what's the last mega store that's opened? I don't even know. You know, uh, a lot of big stores, strong stores have closed. Alton Realities was a big, strong store, top hundred account that closed and nobody, and it created a vacuum that nobody filled. I know there's a few Westchester stores, but when Alton Realities was, a top hundred store. There was also a few right. satellite stores. There were even more. And there's something like, "Hey, I won't order these Marvel lenticular covers." And then one day, uh, they'll get the message and they'll start. I think when you do that, and this is, I don't work for Marvel. I'm not a retailer. I do work for Marvel as a freelancer, but I don't say this on Marvel's behalf. I don't say this because I have inside information. You know, I know Dan DiDio, uh because I worked in the DC offices. I don't know uh, David Gabriel. I don't know. Uh, you know. Mar- uh, uh, Anybody running anything. You know, I kind of know their personalities, but I don't know them personally. So there's no inside information. It's complete speculation on my part. But, you know, every comic that's made is made so the retailer in a small comic shop can make money. You 100% have that. That's the reality of the market, and you should be taking that. You should be making hay while the sun shines because I can't see that they're going to go and that's slowly but surely moving away towards trade paperbacks, towards just IP generation, Netflix series, and all that other stuff. 
I, I can't imagine the mentality, and you see it a lot, of people thinking somehow they're going to bully it back, that it's going to go back in the direction towards the, uh, the making content for, um, mo- you know, monthly content for comic shops. You know, if you think that Marvel and DC have a different philosophy on that, I don't care if, how long you've been in the retail business. I think you're stone cold wrong. Uh, and it's not because they hate it. They love it. They wish that they could just make the comics the same. The reason it takes so long to switch is because they love making comics for the comic shop and the monthly reader. That's how they grew up on it. That's how they do it. That's how everything is set up. They wish they could never change. But they have to change and are changing slowly. And some people are excited about it. And they're going to, you know, and those people who are excited by the change are probably going to be the people who, who, who rise in positions of power. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's, and like I said, I, that sounds so negative, but to me, it's just like, okay, so find your opportunity in that reality. You know, when you mentioned that the industry is already pivoting, are you pointing to things like DC's Earth One graphic novels? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah Earth One, I was uh, very familiar with some good friends with Shane Davis. Just in case yeah. anyone is unfamiliar, continuity free original graphic novels. Right. But specifically, Superman Earth One is one of the most important books from a publishing standpoint that's come out in the last 10 years. It did super well. They made all the classic mistakes, not printing enough. It came out right before Christmas. Then it wasn't available throughout Christmas. Yada, yada, yada. Through, sold 100,000 copies plus. It was a New York Times bestseller for a long time. And they, there were a couple more that they did Batman. They did a couple more Superman. But it was such a success. And still it didn't change how DC does things. And that's really telling that they have a huge success. But it's very hard to get to continue on it because that book was very hard to make. I know Shane was really frustrated every month, uh, every day of, of working on that book because it was, Oh, I'm waiting for a script or they're not doing it. Or then it was, it was out of print. It was not out of print. And there were such crazy ideas that they had that made sense at the time. But now you look back and say, well, that's a silly thing. Like, Oh, it's doing so well. We should re-release it as single issues. And we should <laughs> undo all this other. I mean, it was, that's where the mentality was. It really was so hard to get out of the habit of making comics. Not just a habit because you're lazy and it's a habit. No, because the entire business is run that way. Um, but yeah, it was a huge success. Uh, the ensuing volumes there and the Batman and everything else they did were, were fine successes. Yeah, but they're doing just, uh, Green Lantern. Yeah, they did yeah. Wonder Woman. They did yeah. Teen Titans. Yeah, and they just kind of, it was just, it was for every book, for every editor working on that, for every designer, for everybody in marketing, for everybody in publicity, it was an uphill battle. And a successful book five years ago, lost an uphill battle. Now, if that book came out today, it would, I think, it would, it would you know, but it did push, like I said, it did, it did push the, the books in a little bit of a direction. Before, if Earth One came out today, I think it would have more of an influence because the business is already moving that way slightly. But that it didn't was a huge victory for monthly comics, uh, you know, but is that good best for the overall health of the business? I don't know. Well, I think you've put your finger on this yeah. paradigm shift that's that's yeah. happening, and you know we'll see what transpires over these coming years and how retailers and publishers respond and react to it. Yeah. Maybe it'll be full circle. Maybe the 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 hobby is what's going to save shops. A place like Zap Comics and 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 that where they're like, oh, we do a lot of back issues and people collectors, and and it's it really is it's back to the hobby market. Yeah. Circling back to Moon Girl. Yes. So how did this come about? Was this something that you guys pitched on your own, or was more of a like, we want to do something with this Devil Dinosaur property, and we're soliciting submissions? How did it work? Uh, what happened was, um, again, there was a desire, especially for Amy um, at the time, and we were working together, obviously, on Moon Girl. Uh, on Rock, me, on yeah, Rocket, Rocket Girl. Girl. Yeah. Um, so uh, there was, you know, 
a lot of times like, oh man, we should work on different stuff because we work on everything together. And so why, why do we do that? Right. We rocket girl should be enough, but it was very consuming. Uh, so there was a desire to have more on the shelf because rocket girl schedule, even, even at best was going to be maybe every couple of months we could get a book out. Um, just be, that's, that's Amy working, you know, 20 hour days. It's still, she's coloring it. She's doing everything else. She's, she's very meticulous. So the idea was, hey, wouldn't it, and Amy, Amy can even today, but certainly at the time, can call four different uh, publishers, say, I want a cover gig, and get eight different offers after she called four by the end of the day. She's offered a cover gig every week, I'm sure, still. Do you want to, you know? Uh, so the, there was at some point a thought like, hey, you shouldn't take up a cover. This was just her and I talking. You shouldn't take a cover gig unless you want, like maybe you could write it because that wouldn't even it's a different part of your brain you're not you can rest your hand you know because she does you know she you know, she got to watch her wrist and her thumb and everything else so you could write something and do the and the, what you do the covers for it gives you the kind of that and you have more creative control and you can kind of do stuff rather than just being the cover artist for spider-man or whatever the case may be and that was kind of when uh we were thinking about it and um dc uh had had contacted her maybe about that and she kind of floated it there and there was a power girl story uh, a series that was was uh, that they were kind of you know thinking about doing, and then Marvel we said oh you should kind of just like cast a wider net. So um, we went to Marvel, and basically Marvel was super excited to have us. And from their point of view, it was we like what you do on um, Rocket Girl. Do you want to do it for us? And at, at Marvel and even at DC a little bit, Amy's not uh, as conversant with the characters. Plus, she kind of doesn't want to maybe deal every day with the uh, input that you have to get from editorial dealing, so I could kind of filter that. So so we decided to work together again on something like that. And Marvel just wanted us to bring our Rocket Girl mar- magic over to them, in their words. And we had a meeting, and uh, we were going to talk about what characters to possibly do. And, and we always wanted to do something obscure, because it would um, have less interference. and yeah, less more freedom of, with more, it. Yeah. More creative freedom, exactly, doing it. And um, yeah, I think Devil Dinosaur was the first thing was the first thing uh, uh, offered at that meeting. We talked about a few other odds and ends. Uh, Devil Dinosaur had no interest for for a person like Amy, but then it was Mark Panitra said, "Oh, what about Moon Girl?" And because Amy didn't know Devil Dinosaur, didn't know Moon Boy, didn't know anything like that, but that we could really invent a new character, and not even a legacy character, but just kind of say, "Okay, well, if it's really about her, and she brings a dinosaur into because the old Devil Dinosaur people read it." took place in dinosaur land fighting cavemen all day long, you know, and occasionally aliens inv- invading dinosaur land. But no, we can put it in New York. We make it more about the character. And, uh, yeah, it, and uh, they were pretty much locked into that. Uh, it was originally going to be kind of like an Iron Man spinoff, but it, it joined the Inhuman family later. And, yeah, it was just a lot of fun to develop, and it became, and I say this a lot, but it's true. If you look at my, uh, my files on my computer, it says Devil Dinosaur. And that was the name of the book for a long time. And then we were doing logos, and like it came like, oh, there's a Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl logo. So oh, that's pretty cool. They're going to put Moon Girl on the, uh, on the title. Because it was never Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy. It was just Devil Dinosaur. Right. And then it became Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. And now it's, all anyone cares about is, <laughs> is Moon Girl, which is cool. So yeah. Jack Kirby got nine issues out of it. We got, uh, you know, 30 plus coming. So. You know, one thing that really resonated with me, especially in that first arc, was, you know, her desire to cure herself of the inhuman gene mm-hmm. and just be normal. And, you know, there's a, a part in the storyline where her parents really 
you know, crack down on her and that, you know, she's just going to live a normal life and be a normal girl. And so she's going to school and she's, you know, in gym class and just all these ordinary mundane things. And she has this moment where she's like, is this really what I, what I want to be like, this is what normal is like. Is this really what I want? And it kind of resonated with me because, you know, I always think about like my life would be a lot easier if I wasn't, you know, doing all this podcast stuff and trying to kickstart a documentary. (laughs) It'd be a lot less stressful, but like I wouldn't be me and I don't think I would, I would enjoy that. So that kind of like that in particular resonated with me. Oh yeah. It's like, and it's hard to talk about on any deep level because it's, 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 it's contra- there's a contradiction in everything that she does. And that's what I think things life is like. She is very independent. She very much uh, believes who she is and, and what's important and has no doubt about it. But you know, deep down, maybe there is a doubt, you know what I mean? And, and she isn't so confident. And if she could just make friends with other people like she thinks other people uh, make friends... Maybe she wouldn't have to say, oh, this is beneath me. You know, that goes into the writing. I don't know how much of it uh, comes up to the surface, but that's how you kind of, uh, you know, it's it's yes and no with everything that she does. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was um, it's funny because there's, uh, you know, certainly somebody not wanting uh, powers is, or, or, or to change is, is, has been done before. And in comics, it was, it, to me, it would be interesting. It's like, well, because Ms. Marvel had made such an impact and she always wanted to be a superhero and, you know, careful what you wish for type of thing. So I said, oh, wouldn't it be interesting? Uh, you know, it's just kind of, and that is really a, a flipping Ms. Marvel, that specific book on its head with uh, Lunella. It was like, well, what if the last thing she wants to do is actually become an inhuman? And, and she's terrified of it. Because I think kids, I remember I was, are, are afraid of change, you know what I mean? Especially at that age. And that's become, you know, that's why it's good working with not just Amy, but Natasha Bustos. Uh, you know, and uh, Emily Shaw, who was uh, the original assistant editor to get that kind of girl's perspective for people who were girls yeah. 10 or 20 years ago about, yeah, you know, not wanting to change and everything is fine and, and, and that. And, you know, having kind of such a, 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 in a way, a fragile sense of who she is so that we're, so she really has to build it up that that's the most important. She doesn't want anything to change. Yeah. And then, you know, a big uh, dinosaur it's just some, it's like I said, who, who, for whatever reason we've said, oh, make him as smart as a dog. And, you know, who cares? He's, he's already red and not really biologically uh, accurate. So might as well throw it in there. And, and just as a foil, you know, just somebody yeah. who's always there to, to her. So every time she talks to him, she's really talking to a part of herself. That's kind of the trick to it. But, yeah. Right. Hey, man, I watched 10 years of Smallville, and that was all about Clark <laughs> uh, not wanting to be different. So, oh, so I'm right at yeah. home with, yeah. uh, with yeah. Moon Girl. Yeah. Uh, as far as the writing process goes, I know mm-hmm. now you've taken over writing solo, but right. you guys were co-writing. What was yes. that dynamic like? Were you dividing up scenes? Were you sitting down together and, and breaking the story and then splitting up individual pages? How did how did that process work? Um, yeah, it would change. Uh, so there was it was never consistent, but most of the time we would sit and kind of talk it uh, through as, as to what we wanted to happen. Um, and then... You know, maybe I would outline it then uh, to, to kind of give it the f- its first structure. And then Amy would, um, you know, maybe not with every scene, but with certain scenes kind of um, say, okay, this is going to be a cool visual scene or maybe a scene that she really wanted to talk about. Um, so she would um, break down like very specific scenes and I would do some other scenes. Maybe we'd kind of trade off. But yeah, basically um, I would, uh, we would talk. We would kind of figure out what we wanted to do. I would fit it into a 20-page chapter, um, and then she would, uh, then from there we would kind of like split scenes up, and she might do a few more, uh, or a few less, depending on the issue. But yeah, pretty simply, and um, 
you know, she would, and we would both dialogue with kind of whatever we were working on and then kind of go over it and, and, and give it a pass. And it wasn't always, um, it wasn't always the smoothest, uh, you know, um, working relationship, but, uh, on that, you know, Rocket Girl, we tend to get a, a better, get along better. Not that it was bad, but it would be like, ah, you know, no, you, you, I needed this in here. And by you doing that, it's, you know, ruining it. And that probably came to be honest more for me than it did from her. Uh, and I try not to be somebody who's precious and I'm always somebody who tried to, you know, put the artist first when I was a writer, but kind of co-writing was a little bit, um, it's a little bit hard at some points, uh, just because it would be like, you know, and then you'd also get edits, especially in that first arc, uh, more than you get, you get more edits on issue one and two and three than you do on 31, 32 and 33. Cause everyone's kind of hit a, hit a stride. So it would be like, oh, and then they want to change stuff. And then Amy, Amy was better at being the bad guy as far as don't change this. Don't we want to do that? No, you can't do, you know, cause Amy, cause Amy could go and get angry and they would listen to her more than they listen to me. Uh, she was the bad cop and I was the good cop for sure. And yeah, I mean, then, how much yeah, but then I would be the one telling Amy, you have to be the bad cop about this. <laughs> and she wouldn't care. She's like, well, why don't you just do it? It's like, no, it ruins everything. And, you know, uh, but it was fine. I mean, you know, it was, um, it became the reason, you know, Amy, uh, you know, wanted to do more Rocket Girl and, and get done with Rocket Girl so she could do some other projects and, and, and that type of stuff. So it was uh, it was all good, but um, it was it was probably more work for us to work together than it would have been, you know, doing two different books. So, If you don't mind me asking, and certainly you don't need any specific numbers or anything, but having created the character of Moon Girl, right. I mean, what sort of deal do you have with marvel like when she's featured elsewhere are you getting a royalty no yeah you have to ask me uh, again because that's still up in the air so gotcha it, it, and, and you know um you know i don't i don't want to take anything for granted or put words in anyone's mouth but it's you know devil dinosaur was a was a marvel character uh this is you know a work for hire uh, right. situation uh going in uh what what marvel and dc do is that they have participation for uh certain characters and it's 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 always that uh, goes to review, and that's what takes so long. It's like, okay, well, these people say, hey, they contributed something new. You don't get equity in the sense of any ownership for it, but they have uh, participation programs for characters that you create. And like I said, I, I, I won't hesitate to say that I am the creator of Moon Girl, along with uh, Amy Reader and Natasha Bustos also. Uh, the three of us created that character. Um, and, you know, yeah, there's there's some participation. It was It was... Years ago, easier at DC, you would just fill it. There was a one page, it was a pink form that you would fill out, and then you'd put it in and you'd wait for it to come back. I don't know quite the DC, um, uh, excuse me, the Marvel method, but uh, only that we have put in the request and we're told that it's being considered. And, you know, hopefully soon it will be, hey, this is what you get. And you just get, uh, you just get, um, a little bit of bonus. Right. Uh, sometimes it's a flat fee, like, hey, we're going to pay you uh, X dollars for, because uh, it showed up in um you know a video game or or showed up on a t-shirt and it's a flat face sometimes it's a percentage of cut up i can i can speak you know at dc it's um what used to happen is like okay the superman movie came out we'll send you a check uh burbank will send a check this is back when dc was still in new york and you'd call warner brothers burbank and oh we'd send them a check it might be for fifty thousand dollars it might be for two million dollars and Ed and Min would have to basically go through the movie and say, okay, well, who kind of ideas showed up for this $2 million participation check and how much should they get? And it would just huh. be a bunch of guys trying to be fair uh, and, and try not to miss anybody and saying, hey, you know, this scene was right out of Earth One. So it's, you know, we're going to give them, you know, a, a percentage of the pie. 
and uh, you know, and they would just work it out, and it would take for it would take a long time because, as you can imagine, it's not the most efficient thing. But there was no when it gets into that, it gets weird. And even though your agreement, and I'm talking about the DC agreement, uh, only because, like I said, I'm, I'm still waiting on Marvel. It would be, you know, it'd be a page of 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 this is what you get paid. But then when it came to actually doing it, it took, took forever. But um, yeah, it, there, there's been it's there's been participation uh, for creators at Marvel and DC and. It changes, actually. Uh, I think people who made stuff in 1975 have a different kind of uh, calculation as people are making stuff in 2017. So, Right. Yeah. Yes, I know from my legal training that, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. it would be work for hire, but I did yeah. know that they, they did have those uh, arrangements with creators. Yeah, exactly. So I was curious and, and, what and, it, and it's unaccepted, and, and you're, the, you're, the, you're the lawyer. But uh, it's never, you're never entitled to it. You know what I mean? It's right. always like, hey, we're going to, part, you're going to, we're going to give you a participation as a, as a, as a bonus. Cool. And what about podcasting? Where are you? What's the status of that? Yeah, well, you know, we, we did Podcorn for a long time and uh, just kind of fell off with uh, that. That is going to be relaunched with a lot of other people who are interested. And, I, and I'll play a smaller part in it, and Amy will play an even smaller part than me. But you will see some more Podcorn podcast coming up, I think, uh, any, uh, any uh, week now, kind of a new format. But. Uh, you know the uh, cleaning up the archives as we speak, and probably still doing it for a little bit while longer. Uh, but just make that kind of available, and just because there's a platform for it, and we used to have a, a fair amount of listeners, some other uh, comics folk have uh, expressed an interest. So I think they're gonna, you know, kind of be a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more inconsistent, but coming out more often. So yeah, cool, very good. Well, we'll keep an eye out for all that. Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you, Brandon. And as always, just keep punching.